Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open it up to Philippians chapter 2. We began this sermon series uh, through Philippians at the start of the new year. And in January, and today is the first Sunday in March, and we're just getting to chapter 2. And so we're taking a pretty deep dive into this beautiful letter, this letter of joy that the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Philippi. And the reason why we chose to do this sermon series is because if there ever was a time in our world where we needed a message of joy, we're living through it now. And so may, may the message of joy resonate in your hearts as we hear from God today. Philippians chapter 2 begins with this beautiful word, therefore. And many pastors will say this, and you've probably heard it. The word therefore is there for a reason. Uh, a, I got a better joke coming up. but <laughs> And what therefore is therefore is because it connects the end of chapter 1 to what Paul shares here in chapter 2. And so I'm going to make that connection. I'm going to use that word as a bridge to connect what chapter 1 and chapter 2 is about. Last week was a sermon called A Life Worthy of the Gospel. That was chapter 1. And Paul adds, therefore, right here at the start of chapter 2. So this week, my sermon, the title you see it uh, on your outline there, is A Life Worthy of the Gospel, part 2. So hear the word of the Lord today from Philippians chapter 1. I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and in one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord for us today. So, Paul begins with the word, therefore, and then after he says, therefore, he starts chapter 2 with these four if questions, right? He, he starts with um, the, the, these four if questions, and he uses these if questions as a literary effect. These are, these are rhetorical questions. If you have any encouragement, if any comfort, if any common sharing with the Spirit, if you've received any tenderness or compassion, he, he lays all of these ifs out but the truth of the matter is, the Apostle Paul already knows the answer to these if questions. And the answer is obviously yes. Of course we have experienced the encouragement that comes from Christ and the comfort that comes and the sharing of the Spirit. Yes, we have received the tenderness and the compassion that comes from Jesus. He asks these if questions in a rhetorical way to make the point that he's trying to make even stronger, asking it for the effect of it. Now, for example, 
I'd like to ask you a question, and I just want to show you how this works, this rhetorical uh, effect of these literary writings. And, um, and so I'll ask you a rhetorical question where you already know the answer. All right? I'm confident of that. You already know the answer. So my, my rhetorical question to you is that if, if, if I asked you, what's the best church in San Diego that has a Chinese pastor whose last name is Wong and is married to a woman named Rochelle. Duh! The answer is pretty clear. Come on, guys. I was working hard for that one. (laughs) There you go. That's the rhetorical question. The question you already know the answer to. The best church in San Diego with a Chinese pastor whose last name is Wong that's married to Rochelle is Mission Church, right? Mission Church. And, uh, and so he, we already know the answer to that question. And, and this line of questioning, this line of questioning, isn't something that's unique here in Philippians. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, we find this rhetorical question that's being used in another way. In Matthew chapter 4, we, we know that that's the passage of Scripture of the temptation of Jesus. And, and, and this similar literary effect works here. In Matthew chapter 4, it begins with, The tempter came and asked him, If you are the Son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. And then he goes on to say, And if you are the Son of God, then throw yourselves down, for it is written that he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. The tempter already knew the answer. If you are the Son of God. Of course you're the Son of God. And so, this line of questioning is really not asking a question at all. It's the acknowledgement of something already to be true. And so when we turn our eyes back onto Philippians chapter 2, Paul asks, he asks these four questions of if, of which he knows the answer to be yes, to be true. Instead of saying if, he should say since. Since you have received compassion. Since you have received the, 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 the union of the Spirit. If. Is, is already the acknowledgement of, yes, it's true. And the response then of the church, of what Paul says here, he says this, if those things are true, since those things are true, Paul says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. When, when the Paul says, make my joy complete, what he's doing is he's leaning in on this deep, long-standing relationship that he has with the church there in Philippi. And you know what Paul is doing right here? He is addressing a spiritual issue. He's addressing a problem that exists in the church there in Philippi. And that issue that he's dealing with is division, and discord. 
the church in Philippi was struggling with not being unified, with disunity. And, and we know this as we read the complete story there in, 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 Philipp, in Philippians. And we know this as we jump a little bit further in Philippians chapter 4. In verse 2, the apostle points this very issue out where he says, I plead with Eodia and I plead with Synthache to be of the same mind in the Lord. They, they had a falling out. There was disunity happening in the life of the church. And here in chapter 2, Paul is addressing and pointing out this division. And I want to tell you, church, that this is so important, not just for the church at Philippi, but for all churches subsequent to this. Because as the Apostle Paul writes more in Philippians chapter 4, it's a powerful message for us today. The Apostle Paul goes on in chapter 4 to tell us who Iodia and Synthache are. You know who they are? They're good people. These women are close to Paul's heart. You know how we know that? He tells us so. He says that they have worked with him in, in advancing the gospel. They've worked alongside him and cared for his needs and helped him. And this verse tells us that even good people in the church who love Jesus and serve God can be divided. Yeah. It was a problem that the church in Philippi struggled with. And it's a problem that many churches have. And the Apostle Paul brings this spiritual issue to the surface so that it can be dealt with. This issue of division in the church. And, and this is where he connects chapter 1 and the message of living life worthy of the gospel with chapter 2. When he says, and he, he makes this deep impassioned plea to let the church know that division in the church... It's not living a life worthy of the gospel. Unity is what brings joy. That happens in relationship so beautifully. You just look at your own life and the relationships that you have. Are the relationships that you struggle with where there is division, is there any joy in that? Or are the relationships where you are united in heart and spirit, where the most joy comes from. And joy, again, is the hallmark and the foundation of this letter here in Philippi. It's all about joy. That's one of the major themes of this letter. And it's right here when the Apostle Paul reaches in and asks this church, would you make my joy complete? And then... When he says to make his joy complete, the joy that comes from being united is what it's all about. And the unity then, I want to talk about that a little bit because we want to understand what, the, what, what kind of unity are we talking about. Because when we talk about unity and when we talk about division, there's fruit that come with both things, right? 
And we'll, look, we'll, we'll see the fruit of what unity brings in just a moment. But there's some good things that come from unity and the fruit that, that it bears. And I will tell you this, that when there's division, there's fruit as well too. But that fruit is not worth picking or having. And so, what kind of unity then? We can be unified around all kinds of things. But here specifically, the Apostle Paul is calling for unity around the saving and transforming message of Jesus Christ in the Gospel. That's what we need to be unified with and for. The Apostle Paul is not interested in unity of things on the surface. He's looking for unity in the place where God moves deep within the hearts of people. Paul's not talking about an outward unity where we all kind of look the same and talk the same. When we're only united similarly on the outside, there's a word for that. It sounds like unity, but it's not. That's called uniformity. And you know what a uniform is, right? Some people wear the uniform. It just makes you look the same on the outside. But there's no cohesion and nothing that holds you together on the inside. We don't want to be the same just in how we appear. That falls way short of the unity that God calls for. And what the Apostle Paul wants is a unity deep within our spirit. Paul wants us to be unified in the place where God is at work in our lives. So unity is not the pursuit of trying to be the same. Unity is all about the pursuit of one person. And we're all in that pursuit of following and knowing Jesus to the full extent of authentically loving God, which is the first point of our mission here at our church. Unity is not looking the same. It's all of us looking to the same person. Jesus, to be our Lord and our Savior. And unity is not about pleasing others. It's about pleasing God. That's the heart of where Paul is trying to lead this church. And the reason unity is so important to Paul and should be so important to us today is because disunity and division in the church distorts the character of God in our world. See, the church is the reflection of God in the world. You've heard people say that you are the face and the hands and the feet of God. When we leave this place, we are God's representatives out into the world. And when we leave this place, we're still the church. When we gather, we're the church. But when we go, because the church is not a building, we know this. The church is people. You and you are the church. And I am the church. And we are the reflection of God in this world. And when there is disunity in the church, the kingdom of God suffers. But when the church is unified, 
the kingdom of God flourishes. And so, church, today, I, I, I see the value of unity in the prayer of Jesus in John 17. When you read that prayer in John 17, over and over and over again, Jesus calls for unity. He, he sees the unity that He has with His Father And he thanks God for that. And he prays for the unity that he has with his Father for his disciples, that they be unified as we are unified. And then this is the best part to me in the prayer, where Jesus prays for you and for me. For those yet to believe, he's praying for all of us. And so in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus' prayer, Jesus' prayer, is a prayer for you and I. And he says, My prayer is not for them, which he's talking about the disciples. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Oh, church, watch. Look at this part right here so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's the fruit of unity right there. If this world is ever going to put their faith and trust in Jesus, the church must be unified. Because if we're not unified, Jesus already tells us that the world's not going to believe that he was sent by God. It, it's, it's impingent. It's, it's important that we understand the value of unity because that is the fruit of unity. Our unity plays a huge role in helping the world see that God sent Jesus to us and to put their faith in Him. And to put it even more personally, church, we have a responsibility to the people here in San Diego to be a clear reflection of God's character. Because if we in the church, if we don't long for unity, if we don't fight to have unity, if we're not willing to do what it takes to be unified, Jesus will not be known out there. And I will tell you this, as a pastor for over 20 years, and you probably already know this yourself, unity is not always easy. Right? We struggle with it sometimes. Because if it were easy, we'd be so good at it already. If unity were easy, we'd be thriving in unity. But you know what the problem with unity is? It's me. Really, it is. It's when I want to get my own way. And then it's you. When all you want is to have your way. Because we see unity as doing things my way. You know, if everybody just did everything my way, we would all be unified. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Please, don't amen that. <laughs> but isn't that how we all see unity? Right? 
If you agree with me, then we're unified. That's how we like our unity. But unity on my own terms is not unity at all. Speaking about wars, isn't that why wars are fought? We all want unity, but it's got to be on my terms. Isn't that why marriages fail? Because I want unity, but only on my terms. And isn't why churches close down? Because we only want unity on our own terms. And unity on my terms only is selfish and is sinful. Our unity must be around something so much bigger than me or than you. That's why the church needs to be unified around God's will and God's purpose and God's desire. And all that stems from right here, God's Word. This is what should unify us. And I know that's easy to say, but a lot more challenging to do. But that's the hard work of unity. It's not about me, church, and it's not about you. It's about being tethered to the Word of God. And so here's the connection from chapter 1 and chapter 2. This is why the therefore is therefore. To live a life worthy of the gospel requires us to be and to live life committed to Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. If you have your Bibles, it's there. It's right here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That is something that we are called by God to be and to do. And if we can find ourselves doing that, surrendering our own interests and our own desires, and instead loving and serving others in this way, this is the foundation and the path towards unity that we all can live with. This is so much bigger than me or you. This lesson right here that Paul gives to the church in Philippi, it's straight from Jesus. And I'm going to give a plug to our Wednesday night men's group. Chuck Downing, are you here? I see you, Chuck, right there. Chuck is leading us in a great study through this book right here by Dr. Keith Newman, who was the former pastor of this church. The book is called Live Last. Mark 9.35. This message right here, Live Last, Mark 9.35, is what sums up Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Wow. <laughs> That's hard. That's, That's hard to do, church. Keith Newman says that this right here is the road less traveled. This is the road that leads to living a life worthy of the gospel. Right here. 
Newman said in his book that live lasters, that's what he calls people who live out this passage of Scripture, live lasters. He says they're people who are committed to do what no one else wants to do. Right? People who live last. Who wants to do that? Not me. But that's what Jesus calls us to. And, uh, and the first example that he chooses is this one that's so difficult. <laughs> nobody likes to do this. You know what nobody likes to do? The first thing he points out, to lose. Right? No one wants to lose. If you're playing a game, what's your objective? To win. If you're in a race, do you want to come in second? No, you want to be first. Everybody's vying to be number one, right? And here's the big one. When you're in an argument, Jim, I'm looking at you because I know you never argue. (laughs) When you're in an argument, Who wants to lose there? All we want to do is win. But at what cost? At what cost are you wanting to always win? Win, win. I'll tell you what the cost is and what Jesus is pointing towards here and even what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in Philippians chapter 2. It comes down to something that some of us work hard at, but we all sometimes struggle in, and that is relationships. And in the book, Live Last, right here, there is a short story of Keith Newman going to Florida to this conference where he meets a gentleman from the Middle East who found Jesus. But his whole family is back there and still practice a different faith. And there's tension there. And so they ask the question, how do you deal with that tension of the relationship with your family when your faith is so different? And the response was, win the relationship, but you can lose the argument. (laughs) Wow. Who wants to lose an argument? Not me. But if I love people, and there are a lot of people that I love that are far away from the kingdom, and that if I engage them in conversation about these things, about the Word of God, about what we talked about last week, and if I'm just so dogmatic that I'm not willing And this is hard to say. I'm not willing to lose the argument to save the relationship. Then sometimes I think we we let relationships fail for the sake of just winning an argument. And that's not what I think Jesus is calling us to. I think Jesus is calling us to so much more. Because relationships are way more important than arguments. And unity won't come when we're more committed to win every argument. Because in winning arguments, 
we sever relationships with those that we love. Church, don't do that. Today, instead, let us commit to be a church that is filled with people whose lives are lived worthy of the gospel because we are so committed to being what Paul calls us to be, like-minded, having the same love and being one in spirit and in one mind. Unity together is the most important thing to move forward that bears fruit for the kingdom of God, that shows the character of God into this world that needs to find it somewhere. And my prayer is that the unity that we have surrounding the gospel will be the hallmark of who we are. That needs to be lifted up above all things. And my prayer is, church, that we can find a way to love better, to live better, and to not feel like that we have to be right every time in order to be who we are. More than that, let us let the Word of God be what leads us and guides us. Let us be tethered to this so much that whatever we say and how we live, may the character of our lives just shine the love of Jesus into the lives of this, the people that we know and we love and into the world that we live in. That is the way that the Apostle Paul is, is leading this church that lives in a culture that is so antithetical to, to, the, to the culture of God. And next week, when we look in verses 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, we're going to be invited into what I believe is the cornerstone of this entire book, where Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, and he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross, if we are somehow able to be a church that lives like that, because that's Jesus' example to us, that's Jesus' teaching to us, that's the model that he gave us to live a life worthy of the gospel, then Mission Church has the greatest days ahead of us. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, Thank you, God, that your message is so clear in your word. And all we have to do, Lord God, is to read it, to study it, and may your Holy Spirit confirm it in our own hearts, God. We have a long way to go. All of us do. I do. And how we can live our lives worthy of the gospel. Because sometimes I get so I get so 
confused. (laughs) And I want to just do things my way. And I know, Lord God, that there's a better way than my way. It's your way. And help us to know that way to lead us forward. Help us to be to be standing on the foundation of your word at all times. May may the words of our hearts and the the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts, Lord God, come from you so that we can reflect you to this world in the most beautiful way. Unify our hearts and may the fruit of that unity bring joy to the kingdom of God, we pray in Jesus' name.